Podcastle, episode 132, for November 23rd, 2010, our Flash Fiction Extravaganza, featuring the winners from our Flash Fiction Contest, rated G. Hello and welcome to Podcastle. I'm your host and co-editor Dave Thompson, and we've got a special treat for you all this week. We're bringing to you not one, not two, but three stories voted by you, our listeners and audience, as the winners of our Flash Fiction Contest that took place earlier this year. Today, for your listening pleasure, we present to you The Water Sprite by Alicia Caparasso, Bibliophages by Ramona Gardia, and Fetch by Nathaniel Lee, all in one tasty little episode for this Thanksgiving week. To make things even more fun, we've asked some of the people who participated in the contest on our forum to talk to us a little bit about why they enjoyed the stories after you hear them. So, enough beating around the bush, let's kick things off with our first story, The Water Sprite. Alicia Caparasso is an archaeologist finishing her PhD in archaeological oceanography. While she's published several academic articles on subjects ranging from the metallurgy of Civil War cannonballs to the organization of buildings at fur trading posts, this is her first flash fiction piece to be published. I do hope we see more, Alicia. The story came to Caparasso when she was preparing for a lecture to her introduction to archaeology students on the Calcolithic period in Lower Mesopotamia, the subject of the story, minus the fantasy elements here, of course. The story is read for you by Jack Mangan of the Deadpan Podcast, which is about to celebrate its fifth anniversary. Jack recently contributed numerous pieces of music and two original stories to Michelle M. Welch's Theme and Variations anthologies. Two of his short stories appear in the 2010 Dragon Moon Press book, Podthology, The Pod Complex. He is a story said to appear in M. Brain SF's 2020 Visions edition and is currently working with P.G. Hollyfield on an audio production for his Tales of the Children podcast series. In other words... Jack's a very, very busy man. Find out more about Jack and Deadpan at www.jackmangan.com. So head out to the riverbank to start digging and enjoy the story. The Water Sprite by Alicia Caparazzo. The village elders said that the little creature came from the north, released from the great glaciers that had blanketed the earth 10,000 years ago. According to the dark-eyed traders whose caravans brought obsidian and other precious materials from the far west, few water sprites were ever seen anymore, slipping along rivers, keening to reach the salty freedom of the western sea. Most peoples now believe them to never have existed at all. This one was the first to follow the waters of the Euphrates to the Ubaid. The water sprite appeared suddenly outside of our village, after the great river surged following the seasonal rains far to the north. Perhaps it was one of the last to escape the shrinking ice and had no fellow creatures to show it where to go. For instead of swimming in the streams of the western forests to the sea, it arrived in our arid plain. The floods disappear quickly here. Streaming waters break into shrinking pools dotting the landscape. It was in one such pocket a disused irrigation canal, that the creature was trapped. It was easy to see the pathetic sprite. Though clear as the water in which it swam, the sun reflecting off the hot sandy earth made it sparkle like auburn jewels. 
because I oversaw the shepherd boys who grazed our herds of sheep at the margins of our fields of wheat and rye, I was asked to watch the Sprite. Each midday, I would sit at the highest point of the old Eridu Tell, watching the boys graze the flocks while the Sprite flopped angrily in its evaporating prison. No one knew of Sprites ate livestock, or little shepherds for that matter. As the water at last vanished, the frantic Sprite rolled its little body in the last of the moist dust, sat up on the dry clay, opened its eyes wide to the bright sun, and like newly formed mud bricks, hardened into a desiccated little statue, a cruel effigy of its true elemental character. We left the heat-burnished water sprite, frozen once again in its clay dish. The elders thought it unkind to dampen its skin when it was trapped in our desert, but no one truly knew what to do. Curious shepherd boys, as their flocks lowed in their pens, would creep up at dusk, flicking water in its eyes, making it rapidly blink, before fossilizing once again. They would run away in a fit of giggles, but with sheepish looks on their dirty faces. I watched, waited. As the year passed, the shepherd boys lost interest in the sprite. The winds periodically buried the creature in sand and dust, and each time I dug it out so it could stare across the plain. But it never became familiar. When the river once again flooded the old canal, I guiltily admit that I was relieved to see it vanish in a burst of spray and rapidly scramble to the open freedom of the gulf. Hi, this is Marshall Latham, or Swamp, on the forums. I really enjoyed this melancholy tale of the water sprite, and I voted for it all the way through the Podcastle Flash contest. I think what I like most about it is the curious, respectful vigil kept by the narrator. A trap sprite was quite a novel thing to happen in this hard land, I would guess. But while most grew tired of the magical statue, the shepherd boy watched on and cared for the sprite. Maybe it's more what I filled in with my own mind than what was actually written, like the relationship that formed between the two, at least from the boy's perspective. And though it doesn't state it in the story, I feel the boy would always remember his shared experience with the water sprite as a sign of hope in his life. Anyway, I really enjoyed it. Thanks for the great story, Alicia. Thanks, Marshall. Not only for your thoughts, but for being one of the driving forces in making this contest happen. Anna and I had a blast kicking off our shoes and putting our feet up on the table, watching all of you participate. Our next story is Bibliophages by Ramona Gardia. She's a native Californian currently living just south of the Mason-Dixon line in western Kentucky with her husband and the three housecats of the apocalypse. She's a licensed attorney in two states, but thankfully came to her senses and decided that life's too short to write dry legalese. She's also published a story in the Kaleidotrope magazine. This story is read for you by Wilson Fowley of the Maple Leaf Singers. So get your competitive juices flowing for a different kind of celebrity deathmatch and enjoy the story. Bibliophages by Ramona Gardea Malcolm refilled my drink. Of course you understand you're being told this because you've expressed an interest. I'd really like to know, I said, nodding my head in thanks. This is an honor. Malcolm smiled and patted my shoulder before settling back into his chair. 
It's really quite a remarkable process. Once the worm feeds upon the physical book, it enters a pupil stage. Just like a butterfly? You could say that, Malcolm said. Although it doesn't look like any type of butterfly or moth you've ever seen. Well, then, what does it look like? You'll see, Malcolm said, closing his eyes. You'll see soon enough. Malcolm's eyes shot open, bright with excitement. They really are quite beautiful. Of course, you can't predict how they'll ultimately look, but it is fair to say that the quality of the book determines the quality of the bibliophage itself. I see. It's not just the quality of the paper, the ink, the glue binding it all together. The stories themselves are what is truly important. When Rosewater, you'll see him tonight, discovered the first bookworm, it had been feeding on a stripped paperback of the first twilight book in his pile of stock to be returned. Naturally, the bibliophage, once it emerged from its cocoon, wasn't very big or strong, or even very bright. But Rosewater, over time, learned that when he fed worms better quality books, the resulting bibliophages were, well, magical would be a bit of a cliché. Exceptional only scratches the surface. I nodded again, not wishing to interrupt. For some reason we still can't fathom... The worms show up only in Rosewater's bookstore. Initially, he kept them there as he experimented with different genres. It was when he saw two bibliophages fighting, one had been fed on Atlas Shrugged and the other on the Communist Manifesto, that he realized there could well be an audience for this sort of thing, a specialized audience. A paying audience, I thought to myself, but nodded and said nothing. "'They're so passionate when they face off,' Malcolm laughed. "'I suppose you could liken their tenacity and conviction "'to those little fighting fish, "'or those well-muscled brutes "'in those unsavory covert illegal matches.' "'So they fight to the death?' "'Malcolm, startled, nearly spilled his drink. "'Oh, dear, no. "'The strongest bibliophages are raised on fine literature, after all, "'and are far too cultured for that sort of thing.' But then, how can you tell who wins? That's the beauty of it. We win. When two bibliophages face off, say, one raised on Ulysses and the other on the Odyssey, the resulting wordplay is downright sparkling at times, the sparring of symbolism, the parrying of point of view, and when motifs go mano a mano, I by the muses, it really gets your blood pumping. Tonight's match is Faulkner versus Hemingway. We really should hurry if we're to make it on time. It promises to be quite spirited. Hi, this is Amanda Fitzwater, a.k.a. Biscuit on the forums. I was the author of Midlife Crisis, which came in a very close fourth in the Podcastle Flash competition. Ramona Gadea's Bibliophages was a lovely metaphorical piece. We're all consumers of books and fiction, which is why we're here at Podcastle, of course. Bibliophages spoke to me because I often wish I could simply eat up books. I envy people who can read fast. I know people who can consume one, sometimes two books in a day. I'm the sort of reader who takes it slow, inhales every word, squeezes every ounce of meaning from a book. It means I'm slow, and I often have three, four, even five books on the go at once. And those Batlin book butterflies. What are they but people duking it out onto interwebs over their favourite books? 
Now, I wonder if there could be digital bibliophages. Oh, I can just see it now. Laying the smackdown between our favourite podcasts, audiobooks, and ebooks. Go, Podcastle, go! Thanks, Amanda. It's always a pleasure to hear from you, especially when you're cheering us on. Our final story is Fetch by Nathaniel Lee, and it was the grand prize winner of our flash fiction contest. Nathaniel's a writer of fiction with delusions of grandeur. <laughs> hey, aren't we all? He writes and posts daily 100-word flash fiction pieces to his website Mirror Shards, has had numerous Drabbles appear on the Drabblecast, and is fiction forthcoming from Abyss and Apex. He's known on our forums as Scattercat. Nathan and his wife keep two cats, Osmandius and Belshazzar, and they spend most of their free time staring into glowing screens, of one sort or another. He's also an avid board gamer and role player who suffers from a chronic lack of willing participants. Nathaniel says he finds cats interesting because of the love-hate reactions they inspire. It's not that cats have positive traits and flaws, and some people are willing to overlook the flaws. The exact same traits that people find endearing, others find annoying. This story is read for you by Peter Wood, the man behind the curtain here at Podcastle who continues to make us sound good. So sit back, relax, see what the cat dragged in, and enjoy the story. Fetch by Nathaniel Lee I told him the very first time he brought me my slippers, That's dogs, I said. Dogs bring things to their owner. Cats aren't supposed to. He didn't listen to me. I guess that is like a cat. He never brought me things when I asked for them, either. Sometimes he brought them at just the right time. I remember the day I sneezed hard enough to knock my glasses off. I had mucus running down my face, my eyes watering so badly I couldn't have seen even with my glasses, and there, under my questing hand, was a whiskery little nose and a mouthful of Kleenex. Sometimes he wasn't nearly so convenient. Debbie never believed I hadn't trained him to bring the condom. I tried to explain timing and romance to him. He didn't listen. I never gave him a name. He wouldn't have responded to one anyway, and it seemed a little presumptuous. We didn't get confused. There wasn't anyone else to talk to, especially after Debbie left. Originally, I let him roam outside when he liked. He'd bring things back, of course, dead mice and squirrels at first. When I didn't seem to like those, he went farther afield. Silverware, other pets' food bowls, welcome mats. Mrs. Columbo from across the street thought I was some sort of pervo freak after she found all her underthings missing from her laundry line and piled on my front stoop. Once, he somehow lugged an entire 16-pound bowling ball all the way to the front door. He was perched next to it when I came out for the paper, trilling happily to himself. Then he got ambitious. A set of hubcaps. I tried to convince myself he hadn't gotten them off an actual car. An aluminum canoe. A square, plastic-wrapped package of white powder. I flushed that down the toilet and then spent a week jumping at every distant police siren. After the powder trick, I kept him inside unless he was supervised. He must have gotten out somehow. Cats have that way about them, you know. You just realize that you haven't seen them in a while, and you look around, and they're nowhere to be found. I spent a lot of time pacing, 
considered unquitting smoking. I tried to think if he had seemed angry the last time I'd seen him. I wondered if he'd come back or if I'd never see him again. I'm still not sure which option worried me more. My questions were answered yesterday. He must have thought he was being punished. He must have wanted to apologize. He still doesn't quite understand people. Not really. The money is in a five-foot cube in the basement. I stopped counting after ten million or so. My nails are bitten down to nothing. I'm afraid to turn on the news. And this morning, he brought me some travel brochures. Islands. I hear some of those island countries can be really pleasant. If you've got the money for it. Hey, this is uh, Eitan Zweig, uh, known as Eitans in the forums. Regarding fetch, well, as an animal lover, I first took it to be a straightforward, if rather well-written, story about a pet that will just try to please its owner, even if that means doing something impossible, but isn't just that good at actually figuring out what its owner wants. But later it occurred to me this story can also be read more ominously, with the cat having some sort of agenda in which the man is more or less an unwitting pawn. And I just like it. I like how the story, without being deliberately kind of or explicitly vague, still leaves so much open to the interpretation. And I just thought that's a great feat in such a short story. Thank you. Thank you very much, Itan. I do dig your ominous agenda. And I really dug getting to hear some of our forumites talk about the stories they voted for here. I hope the rest of you did too. Anna and I want to thank everyone who took the time to participate in this contest. The writers and the readers. You all rock, and it was a fascinating experience to sit in the stands, essentially watching you all edit this episode. Thanks. We're going to hit feedback now, specifically for episode 125. William Hope Hodgson's somewhat forgotten classic, The Whistling Room, featuring Karnacki the Ghost Finder, narrated by the excellent Paul S. Jenkins. It was a queer, old-fashioned kind of ghost story with a healthy dose of weird pseudoscience for October, and I have to say, it made all of us here at Podcastle very, very happy to hear how many of you enjoyed it. Aside from the queer overuse of certain adjectives, that is, which seemed to be the most common complaint along with some meandering attention spans. MC Wagner said, Love, love, love this one. Karnacki caught my eye a couple of years ago from several references in the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen comics, but the intro to this story made me realize that I'd read a Karnacki story somewhere in the distant past because I explicitly remember the use of the electric pinnacle and the uncovering of a false haunting, which makes this story all the cooler as it means Karnacki's neither Scooby-Doo always uncovering the supernatural is false, nor the X-Files always uncovering the supernatural is legit, though I do generalize. The actual story exceeded my expectations. The antiquated parapsychology terminology, the exceedingly slow build with ponderous backstory and foundation, and the wonderful climatic reveal wherein we discover that the title was intended to be taken literally, all struck harmonious chords for me. Paul S. Jenkins' reading was a perfect match for the subject matter as well, speaking as he does with a Poe-like reserve and old-world sensibility, even during the disparate action sequences, fitting perfectly with the fact that Karnacki is narrating the vast majority of the story. Vagrant said, Horror fiction's evolved over the last century. 
No one in the story who was investigating the haunting ever got hurt in any way other than to lose some sleep because of a noisy neighbor, and who hasn't had that experience? Nowadays, someone would be hung from the middle of the room by a piano wire at the very least. This was a refreshing change from the norm, and I don't mean Norm Sherman, he rocks. And Fractious said, I quite enjoyed this story, enough to get me to comment after months of wading through the archives and listening to the casts. I like the feel of Lovecraft, but not the execution, and in William Hope Hodgson, I find a style of writing I'm much more in tune with, but still the delightful, fantastic horror of Lovecraft-esque mythos. Thanks to the editors for dredging this author up, I'll be sure to hunt down more of his work. Ah, it did all our hearts good to hear some of you were going to be on the lookout for more Karnacki. Maybe we should be hunting down some more ourselves. That's our show for this week, we hope you enjoyed it. Anna and I picked out a couple of more stories from the Flash Fiction Contest that we'll bring to you all over the next few months in our regular, individual Flash Fiction episodes, so keep an eye out for those. If you're American, and you're trying to think up something to be grateful for this weekend, might I be so bold as to say give thanks for not just Podcastle, but all of the Escape Artist casts? Each podcast here tries to bring you the best science fiction, fantasy, and horror stories for free, week after week. So if you want to hook us up with a few extra bucks, I promise you we'll appreciate it. And we'll use it to keep our authors paid and our podcasts surviving in these strange celebrity podcastian death matches. So please, visit podcastle.org if you can make a donation. Or, if you're sitting around the table this weekend with a bunch of family and friends, tell them how awesome we are. Whatever the case, thanks very much for letting all of us here at Podcastle share some more stories with you. I want to give a big shout out to our sound producer Peter Wood this week, who in addition to reading, had to do a bit of extra work to make all this happen. Thanks also to Marshall, Amanda, and Aiten for sharing their thoughts on the stories. Podcastle's also made up of sprightly associate editor Ann Leckie, and your chief editors, the cat like Anna Schwind and... Jeez, why do I have to be the worm-like one again? Well, whatever. This is Dave Thompson signing off. We'll see you next week when Gary Closter litters the street with the blood of dead gods. (laughs) You've really got to ask yourself if that signifies the beginning or the end of the holidays, I guess. Until then, give thanks, and we'll see you in a week. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. You can discuss this episode of Podcastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartist.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend or post to your blog about it or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Steve Ely said, have fun.